Hello, my dear listener. Welcome to Bible study. This is Nick Rita, your host. Thank you for tuning in today. It's our pleasure to welcome you and inviting you to stay with us for the hour. We will talk about a very interesting um, topic today. We are still under this theme, um, future hope. And today we are going to talk about uh, Christ's victory over death. I would like to welcome our panel and it's good to have you with us, uh, Brenton. Thank you, Nick. Um, it's a pleasure to be on again. Joe, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here again. Thank you, Nick. Jerry, thank you for being part of this. Thank you, Nick. Good to be here again. Lija, thank you for uh, also joining us. Yes, thank you. It's a special privilege. Thank God for this. Will, it's good to have you with us too. Thank you. The Bible says we're... A few Christians get together, God is there, so I'm happy to be here. And Len, it's good to have you part of this uh, discussion today. And even more importantly, that uh, you are going to facilitate this discussion again. Thank you for uh, preparing the study for today and welcome to the program. Thank you. And hello, listeners. All right, Len, let's just um, start today and it's uh, over to you. Please take us through this uh, Bible study. All right. Well, what happened to Buddha, the one who founded the Buddhist religion? At the age of 80, after 45 years of teaching, Buddha died, surrounded by a large group of his disciples. And according to Buddhist tradition, will not be reborn again. Muhammad and other founders of world religions likewise have died. But what happened to Jesus Christ is different. Although Christ died, he, unlike the other world religious leaders, did not remain in the grave. If Christ remained in the grave, the situation would be, as the Apostle Paul said, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. So, is the Christian faith an exercise in futility? Or is it the pathway to salvation, eternal life? Today, we will examine the evidence from the Bible on this fascinating subject. But before we do, Brenton, would you pray for us as the panel and those who care to listen? Certainly. Father in heaven, we thank you that we have not followed cunningly devised fables. We have followed a truth, and that is that Christ is the only person who had the power to raise himself from the grave. And he did that, and because of that, we have hope for today, and we have an eternally secure future if we continue to trust and believe in you. As we share this faith, this testimony of Jesus, and the things from your word today, Lord, open our minds by your Holy Spirit and touch the hearts of those who are listening to this program. May we see that Jesus is indeed the resurrection and the life, and soon he is coming to take us to be with him. We thank you for that, and we praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Brenton. Well, now, what did Jesus say about what would happen to him? And Lydia, would you like to take up this in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 40? Yes, the Bible says that for us, Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
So in the Bible it says that Jesus was dead in the tomb for three days and three nights. All right. Well, now that's a rather remarkable statement. If when somebody dies, they are not able to say they will only be in the tomb for a certain amount of time. As we understand death, when somebody dies, they stay dead. But Jesus didn't say that. Now, Joe, Jesus added some more detail about what Lydia just shared with us in Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. Would you like to share that? Certainly. It says, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and he will and sorry, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. So he's given more information than he was recorded in Matthew 12. In Matthew 20, he says that he will be raised to life from death on the third day. Yes. Well, now, there's a religious group that I'm aware of who, based on the text from Matthew 12, maintained that Jesus was in the tomb for exactly three 24-hour days, amounting to a total of 72 hours. But biblical evidence does not support their conclusion. Christ died at about 3 p.m. on Friday, that's called the Preparation Day, was in the tomb all during the following day, that's the Sabbath, and rose early in the morning, on the first day of the week. Others say that when Christ died, he wasn't really dead, but in some sort of coma. If that was the case, then Jesus never really died for the sins of the world, and all the pain and persecution he suffered was a waste of time. Can you give any evidence to support the claim that Jesus was indeed completely dead? Yes, Len, there are good reasons to believe that the disciples were not wrong about Jesus' death. Um, I'd like to speak quickly to the extended contact. You know, sometimes we have the tendency to read over the following verses or any verses pretty quickly, but I'd like to refer to Mark 15, 43 to 46. It says, So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of the rock. Now, let's stop and consider for a moment. Think of all the handling of Jesus' body here. Jesus' loyal followers had to take him down from the cross. It seems that the cross was still standing. Remove the nails, carry him some distance to the tomb, where before the Sabbath arrived, they washed the body to remove the blood, and basically prepare it for the next step of wrapping and anointing. The Bible actually tells us that Joseph and his helpers actually wrapped him in linen. Surely the disciples were deeply grieved by the death of Jesus. In all this extended contact with his body, do we really think they wouldn't do everything possible to prove to themselves that he wasn't really dead? In this time with him, it is reasonable to believe that they would have noticed the three stark properties of dead bodies. Loss of temperature. You know, when the heart stops pumping, the body begins to cool. And in time it would take to prepare Jesus for the tomb, 
the disciples would have certainly observed this feature of death. We know that um, there's rigidity as well. When the blood is not circulating, the body begins to stiffen. Lividity is another one we must think about. Gravity begins to act on uncirculating blood. As blood settles in those extremities that are closest to the ground, discoloration is noticeable. And in all the time, their time near Jesus' body and this extended contact, it's reasonable to think that those attending to him would have looked for the slightest hope of him still being alive instead of noticing the clear evidences present in the uh, body of a dead person. Now, I'd like to just quickly mention the corroboration from the Romans themselves, Len. John, the disciple of Jesus, reports in his gospel, the soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear. So those experienced soldiers confirm that he was dead. Now, history tells us that there is a tremendous penalty to be paid by Roman soldiers and citizens if they allowed a capital criminal to either escape or avoid the penalty for which uh, they were sentenced. For this reason, I believe the Roman soldiers, being brutal and meticulous in executing their orders with precision, tells us a lot about the death of Jesus. But let me look at a non-Christian at the scene. Jesus was dead on the cross, and I'd like to read from Scripture again, Mark 15, from verse 42, just snippets here and there. As evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Notice, Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. And Pilate, summoning the centurion, asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. Joseph bought some linen cloths, took down the body, wrapped it in linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Now, Len, I'd like to highlight that the centurion, summoned by Pilate at the risk of his execution if he provided false information, would have made double certain Jesus was indeed dead. This is what he reported to Pilate. And lastly, over and above all this, if there was a warning by the Jews of something sinister and the need to secure the tomb, it's absurd to believe that when the the centurion and at least 50 soldiers were assigned to watch the tomb, they would have slipped up and not made sure that they were not, in fact, guarding a living prisoner, but made certain that he was indeed dead. So it's not unreasonable to assume that the centurion would have checked the man in the tomb before sealing it and guarding it, especially with the rumors of some special escape plan. Then it all adds up to pretty good evidence for me. Yes, I think there's very powerful evidence, and you've given a pretty good range of evidence there that Jesus was indeed dead. Joe? It's uh, it's probably interesting to note that, you know, as to the, you know, 
you know, they say that maybe the disciples came in the night and stole him. Well, the disciples and his followers were one of the most surprised of his resurrection. They, In fact, some of them were doubting that it really was him. So it's not likely that they would have um, been, you know, they would have stolen his body away or anything like that. Waited for him to come out of a coma and then, you know, brought him out. They were they were the most surprised of all. Yes. Um, my wife and I were discussing this. And as far as we know, there was only one of the disciples at Jesus' crucifixion, and that was John. Where were the others? Well, later on, it's revealed that they were hiding because of the fear of the Jews. So it was fairly unlikely that they were going to surreptitiously sneak out at night and try to reclaim the body. And then there would be the other question, why would they do that? All right, so let's move on. Jerry, what initial measures were taken to ensure Jesus' body was not stolen from the tomb? Okay, perhaps if I could read some verses uh, from Matthew 27, verses 62 to 66, and it says there, On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. I guess the initial measure that they took was to make absolutely certain that um, there was no way that Jesus would uh, be able to come out of the tomb by positioning a large disc-shaped stone in front of the entrance of that tomb. And it's one of those situations, I think most people will have seen that, uh, where it's actually a huge stone specifically made for that purpose, to to seal a tomb. And you don't just roll that away by yourself. I would imagine it would take quite a bit of effort to remove that. And it was also positioned in a certain way that uh, when it came to rest, you'd have to go back in the the same way that it came in, as it were, which was going uphill, so to speak. So it was really difficult to to remove that. But it's interesting, I I find, Lynn, too, that um, it's almost as though when you hear them speaking like this, that they there was a degree of anxiety with the chief priests and, and the rulers because it must have come back to them that Jesus had predicted his demise, but not only that, but that he would be, be betrayed into their hands, that he had the power over death. They, they had witnessed that in the uh, resurrection of Lazarus. Uh, Jesus himself had given them an indication in um, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, I'll just read that verse where he says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. They didn't want that to happen. They didn't want to believe that that could possibly happen. But you can sort of almost sense the, the fear in their hearts that, hey, maybe, maybe he is who he says he is. And we want to make sure that that's not the case. They didn't want him to be their Messiah. So they wanted to make absolutely certain that um, he didn't come out of that tomb. Yes, the stone, of course, was not just rolled, but the scriptures say that it was sealed. I've um, looked at some documentaries about the three possible places where Jesus may have been buried, 
And one of the features that I didn't realize is that somehow or another the Romans made put an iron bar across the stone fastened to the wall. So that's possibly the ceiling of the tomb. All right, that's level of protection number one. But there was a further level of protection, another safety measure taken to secure the tomb where Jesus was laid. What was that, Nick? Well, and, uh, I think this was already <clears throat> mentioned. Uh, Will um, alluded to this uh, also. And um, I'm going to just uh, read again um, that beautiful uh, passage in Matthew, which gives account of what happens. And verse 66, uh, Jerry also quoted this. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the, um, sealing it with a stone and setting a guard. Now, uh, we'll just say that it may be 50 soldiers there or even more, because I believe they were not only the guard provided by the Romans, but also some soldiers from the temple, you know, the Jewish people uh, would have been there to make sure that uh, everything is done properly. Now, what I would like to bring here is that these Jewish people, who are supposed to be those ones who knows the word of God and, you know, the, to teach others, they knew the prophecy about Jesus. They were more concerned about the prophetic account and what could happen. That's why they said they asked for a guard for three days. Interesting, because they knew that Jesus spoke about this, that after three days, um, he will rise again. I was giving the example with Jonah and they were more interested in the prophetic account. Because if they thought, okay, he's not uh, dead or uh, whatever else could happen, people who are in coma, for example, they can be much more longer than three days in coma. Uh, you wouldn't be worried about that. You may say, hey, let's keep a guard there until at least he's going off, you know. <laughs> but they were interesting in this prophetic aspect that proves again that they knew something about Jesus Christ, but they didn't want to accept it. They were so proud of themselves and full of themselves that they, they just wanted to be their way rather than accepting God's way. And in particular, what Jesus was teaching all during this time uh, with them. Yes. Well, it was probably um, the uh, Jewish leadership who asked for a guard to be placed there uh, they wanted to make sure that if Jesus wasn't dead, that he wasn't going to escape or that the disciples wouldn't come along in the night and take the, the body away. So this double level of security actually shows the power of God. Well, we're going to move on from that. Jesus will leave that part there. Jesus is dead. He's in the tomb. There's a security placed outside the tomb to make sure nothing strange happened. And um, so, Brendan, would you like to explain the death of Jesus, given what he said in John 10, verses 17 and 18? Mm, certainly. It says this, Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I received from my father. Back in the 
eternal ages when the plan of salvation, which we've talked about in past um, sessions, was put in place. Obviously, there was some discussion, which we are not privy to from the word of God, as to how the whole plan of salvation was to operate. After all, if we're going to be spending eternity understanding it, there's a lot of things we don't understand at the moment. Christ had the power within himself to raise himself from the dead. However, if you study scripture, it also says that God raised Christ from the dead. And you have to understand those in terms of because of the equality of power between the Father and the Son, Christ was able to do this. Although Christ's humanity died, his divinity did not die. Now, he said, and someone has alluded to this earlier on, that in John 11, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So Christ was alluding in the raising of Lazarus that he had the power to raise Lazarus. He had the power to raise those who believed in him and would still be alive when he returned. And he had the power to raise to life those who had died so that when he returned. So he was alluding to all of this, Len, in, in advance. I just see John 10, 17 and 18. I don't see any particular problems with it. I see it as in the relationship between the Father and the Son when Christ came to this earth, there were certain things, certain powers and authorities that he was given by the Father, and he's merely exercising those powers. The tomb couldn't hold him, and I think that's a good thing because Interestingly enough, a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that 44% of Australian Christians believe in the resurrection. Did you realise that only 22% of that 44% actually believe the resurrection as it is taught in the Bible word for word? Now, that is an appallingly low figure, and that might explain a little bit why as Australians, we have gone astray spiritually. If you do not believe in the resurrection, as the Bible teaches it, you're all at sea spiritually. So here Christ in uh, chapter 10 is saying, I'm going to lay it down. It's a deliberate act, and I'm going to take it up again. And I'm glad because every um, aspect, Len, of the plan of salvation is deliberate. Yes, we're still talking about Jesus' death. And when Jesus died, some unusual things happened, which don't happen normally when a person dies. What were they, Joe? Well, um, some interesting things happened, yes, for sure. Let me just read the um, scripture from Matthew twenty-seven fifty to 54. And I think uh, components of that we've touched on. It says, And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And there's a spiritual significance of that. That was the curtain that separated the holy from the most holy. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion, those with him who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Now, we, we've already mentioned that a centurion, some sources say that he commanded 80 men, some 100 because of the, you know, sent, sent for 100. But these were very brave, courageous, fierce 
warriors, a, a centurion, for instance, was a fighting elite experienced and trained in uh, battle. They led the charge. They were at the front of the battle, and if needed, if it needed, they would lead their men forward, and they would set the example for courage. Many didn't reach a very old age. But here we have a centurion and his men saying, surely, they were terrified this was the son of God. I know that in Matthew, uh, Mark, sorry, it also tells us that there was darkness that isn't recorded in Matthew, that um, it was an unnatural darkness with the, the sun mm. hid it, its light. And for a space of, um, a, well, probably, let me read it. Three of the four Gospels that record the earthly life and ministry of Jesus, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, mention the sky became dark as Jesus hung on the cross. It was now about noon, this is from Luke, and darkness came over the whole land until three because the sun's light failed. So we have this rending of nature. We have darkness. We have an earthquake. We have um a thick curtain that separates the holy from the most holy. I don't know. Some say that it was a cubit thick. Some say that it tore from the bottom up. Some say that it tore from the top down. It was unnatural strength that actually could do that. And I guess the significance of that is probably beyond this study. But there were, and then of course there was um, the earthquake. But it says that many of the tombs were open. But this, there were two earthquakes. There was one at his death, and there was one on resurrection morning. And this is when. Those who had died in Christ, there was a select few that had come up and they were witnesses also to his resurrection. And they went out, not only testifying of their own resurrection, but the resurrection of their Lord. So we're, there are far many more res, more witnesses than we can really account for. With the raising of the dead, they, according to scripture, if you read the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then you read the book of John, if you compare all the accounts of the resurrection which we're doing in our study today, you'll come to a certain conclusion. The graves were opened on Friday afternoon when Christ died and the bodies were exposed. They did not actually rise from the dead till the Sunday morning when Christ rose because then they went in and announced his resurrection. Now, had they been raised on Friday they would not have been able to announce his resurrection to people. So therefore it was necessary for them to, the graves were opened, it says, but on Sunday morning when Christ rose from the dead, uh, they then rose and they went into the city and confirmed to others that he had indeed risen from the dead. Another important point that Joe read that I found interesting was the very first comment that she made, that he gave up his spirit. He gave up his spirit. It ties in with the fact that he said, I have power to lay down my life and I have power to take it up again. It was all under his control and his father's control. And I think that we can have total confidence that the plan of salvation as it has worked out thus far is is everything has gone to plan and it will continue to go to plan. And I think for our, those who are listening, Len, that's wonderful, wonderfully good news. It gives us confidence that the one who rose from the dead will someday, very soon, come to raise the dead and take us all to heaven to be with him. Joe mentioned that uh, we don't know exactly, you know, the the time, even though the Bible yeah, gives that indication that there were maybe 
three hours of darkness. The reason I'm bringing that also is that in the Bible, God is very particular, you know, to put things in picture that we may understand correctly. And three, it's also very significant, you know, uh, in the Bible, you know, if we look at that aspect. Now, I'm not going to go into numerology and all other things, but I believe this is important that was darkness for three hours. And probably another time, another Bible discussion, we may talk about this very important things which God set up for us to understand, to connect things together, to uh, really know and be assured that what he's telling us through his word is true. We have texts in the Bible which clearly says that God raised Jesus from the dead. I would like to mention just only a few. Acts 2.24, it says, But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Acts 3.15, You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. Uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 10, it says, And know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. And there are many. Acts chapter 13, verse 30 and verse 37. Chapter 5, verse 30. Chapter 10, verse 40. Hebrew 20. Romans 10, verse 9. Romans 8, verse 18. Galatians 1, verse 1. Colossians 2.12, First Peter 1.21. should not be confused about this because God raised Jesus through his power because Jesus was submitting himself in everything he did on earth. He collaborated with God, with his Father. Yeah. All right. Well, there's plenty of evidence that um, Jesus was indeed dead. But Lydia, what happened on the Sunday morning following Jesus' crucifixion the previous Friday? Okay, uh, on Sunday morning, the resurrection happened. So we have this described by the three of his disciples. So in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke, and everyone being a witness, they described it differently. Very early in the morning, uh, it says, uh, Matthew says that it was a, a very violent earthquake and the women, uh, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of uh, James and Salome, bought spices and they went to anoint Jesus' body. And uh, when they went to the tomb, they were worried about who's going to roll the stone from, from the tomb for them to be able to do this. So they found also... Uh, by their surprise, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Uh, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the man said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. 
Remember how he told you while he was still you in the Galilee. So he is living. He has risen. Yes, probably some of the most famous words ever uttered. Sure. He is not here. He has risen. Yeah, I was just going to emphasize on the, on that uh, which Lija just read that the angel mentioned in particular, why are you looking for the living among the dead? This is very important because uh, now the angel was talking to those who believed in Jesus. You know how subtle it can be that even believers can have doubts. We need to be again assured, encouraged today through what we are studying, that we we are under God's guidance and God will never let us down. God doesn't lie. God doesn't tell one thing once and another thing the other time. God is consistent. And if we know the Bible, if we look into the word of God as a whole, in the context, will really, will really understand everything what we need to know and not to be deceived. Because we are talking about here some very sensitive things, you know, that God's people, Israel, they were planning against God. What God have spoken or foretold them before many, in many parts of the Bible, in the Torah, in the, all those sacrifices referred to Jesus. And they were so stubborn and closed in their mind. Yeah. Well, interesting that um, Nick brought that up. But I wonder if it, if anyone noticed that they actually went on the Sabbath to seek an extra guard, that they actually yeah. broke the Sabbath in order to keep the Lord of the Sabbath under wraps. Okay. <laughs> I did notice um, that. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, Lydia, Lydia mentioned that um, there's some variation in the in the Gospels of the story of the account of the resurrection, and I, I feel that that only adds to its veracity in the sense that it appears that there weren't, you know, any collusion, that there wasn't any corroboration. Let's get the story straight so that we all say, speak with the same voice, that we all say the same thing because um, we don't want, you know, to, to appear like we're telling, you know, lies. So it's good that it has some some variation. The essentials are spot on, but, there, you know, there are some variation, which is probably ex- acceptable and expected of, you know, four different people. And um, I think it just adds to its truthfulness and its um, authenticity in my mind. Um, I think yes. when a judge sees a witness, they all use the same phraseology and they all say the same thing, it gets suspect, doesn't it? Yes, that's right. All right, well, now, he is not here, announced the angel. He is or he has risen. What does the resurrection of Jesus demonstrate? Jesus had demonstrated, I think, the absolute power over death when he was raised. Um, when he raised Lazarus after four days in the tomb, that was one evidence of his power over death. But everyone at the time realized this. And now with a formidable force representing the mighty of the might of Rome, sent to God Jesus' tomb then, an angel comes down and uh, the earth quakes, as we have read, 
And these soldiers, the Bible says, fell down as dead men, terrified by the dramatic events. Anyone there that day would have incontrovertible proof that Jesus' victory over death is conclusive. I'd like to just read a text. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. That's Romans 6 verse 9. It also demonstrated God's and Christ's power over Satan and over sin and evil and death that um, he rose victorious and this was the death knell for Satan and his empire. One of the interesting things about all of this is, um, as you know, in the book of Matthew, it tells you that um, the Pharisees bribed the soldiers to tell a story saying that while we slept, his disciples came and rolled him away. We've talked about the physical impossibility of rolling away the stone. I think Jerry touched on that. We have talked about um, how there were at least 50 soldiers and possibly as many as 100 in attendance at the time. They would have uh, proceeded in watches of four. That means that there is no way known on this earth that all soldiers were asleep at the same time. Therefore, it's pretty difficult to spin a story. I mean, even our, our politician spin doctors would have had trouble with this one, to spin a story that while they were sleeping, while they, the guards were sleeping, his disciples came and stole his body away. It's just a physical impossibility. Also, if they agreed to this story, they, their lives would be in danger, as I think Will touched on. The result of allowing a prisoner to escape, whether dead or otherwise, or a body to be removed, was instant death. So the soldiers themselves would have been executed. So all of these things together, I believe, probably are the crowning evidence that Christ did indeed rise from the dead. And uh, because he rose from the dead, that gives us hope for today and, and for the future. Yes, well, anyhow, Mary, one of the women who arrived at the tomb early that Sunday morning, was heartbroken as she came to pay respects to her Lord. Seeing Jesus nearby, she assumed he was the gardener. She asked him if he knew where Jesus' body was, and he replied, Mary. Joyfully, she recognized his voice and probably went up to hug him. What did Jesus then say? And what does it reveal about death? Yes, in, in John chapter 20, verse 17, it says, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Now, it's interesting to note, yes, he had risen from the dead, but he hasn't yet ascended to the father. And, of course, there's a big difference. And if you go to uh, Matthew 28, in verse 6, it says, they were looking for Jesus, of course. The angel, that says in verse 5, rather, the angel answered and said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. In verse 6, he's not here, for he is risen. And he said, come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So in verse uh, 17 of chapter 20 in the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus 
He understands, of course, that Mary wants to embrace him when she sees him. But uh, though he is risen, he is not yet ascended to the Father. And um, Jesus had to ascend to the Father to receive the assurance that his sacrifice had been accepted. But immediately after that, he comes back because it says in, um, in chapter 28 of Matthew, as I've read, and go quickly and tell the disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples word. And then it says in verse 9, And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. So in this instance, so Jesus has ascended to the Father, and he's come straight back. Initially, he didn't want them to embrace him because he hadn't yet ascended to the Father. But here, uh, he has no issue with them embracing him. He's come back. So what that tells me is that Jesus had physically died on the cross, but he hadn't immediately ascended to heaven. Now, what you've just said, Jerry, uh, raises a very important theological issue. And Nick, just before Jesus died on the cross, one of the thieves crucified with him cried out something. What was it? And then, Lydia, would you give the answer? Or I lend and panel we read in um, in Luke uh, chapter twenty three and verse forty two says, "Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom.'" This um, thief, he would have known and heard about Jesus' teachings also, even maybe not directly, but from other people. But he, because he was able to express his faith in God about resurrection, that when you will come in your kingdom, remember of me. I think this is a wonderful thing, and we can uh, explore a little bit more on this. So, Lydia, what did Jesus reply to the thief who said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom? Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. All right. Now, Brenton, something doesn't seem to add up because Jerry was telling us that Jesus told Mary he had not gone to the Father, which we would assume is paradise, and yet uh, we have this statement. Can you clear this up? Because I'm sure there are many of people listening today who understand there's some sort of a controversy here. First of all, I'd like to go back to, to John chapter 14, where Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. Christ died Friday afternoon. The thieves did not die Friday afternoon. John chapter 20 tells us that the Roman soldiers came along. They pierced Christ's side and found that he was dead. And they broke the legs of the two thieves so that they could take them off the cross so that the bodies were not hanging on the cross over the Sabbath. These men were still alive. It was possible, according to accounts that I've read for you, to last three or four days after being crucified. So even if Christ had have gone to heaven that day, which he didn't, obviously they didn't go to heaven that day either because in Acts chapter 1, the disciples say to Jesus this, they say, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom 
to Israel. The kingdom that they were waiting for was the wrong kingdom, but even at that stage, 40 days after Christ's resurrection, the kingdom had still not been restored to Israel and the thieves had not gone to heaven. Jesus was buried before sunset. As I say, they were, they were left out in the open. Where their, um, the men were placed, we don't know. I, I think all of these things together, there are so many questions that you don't need to worry about where the comma was placed. There's been whole arguments and whole theses written on where the comma was placed in this. I think if you take the overall tenor of what Christ said, you don't have to worry about any of that. He said he was going to prepare a place for us. That still hasn't happened. He still hasn't come back to take us to be with him. Therefore, the the thief, he simply died and he's resting in the grave awaiting the resurrection when Christ returns. And that's the important thing. It is. Now, Joe, most conservative Christians accept that Jesus resurrected early Sunday morning. Following this event, he remained with his disciples. How long was that and why? Okay, well, just quickly, many um, conservative Christians also believe because he rose on the Sunday morning that this now had transferred the sacredness from the Sabbath to Sunday, which did not happen. I just thought I'd throw that in there. Now, why did he why did he stay with his disciples for this long? Well, I'll tell you, it was for about 40 days. I'll read it from Acts 1-3. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Why did he do that? I believe that he did that to show that he wasn't some sort of apparition or a figment uh, of their imaginations, but was a truly resurrected person from the dead, that he was actually real. Um, His death was a bit of a game changer. In fact, it was a game changer, and they needed much support and instruction and encouragement for what was laying ahead of them. So I believe that 40 days was quite critical for preparation time for them and then there's a matter of pentecost which is beyond beyond our discussion here yes you uh, mentioned that there were many convincing or infallible proofs that he was alive now we had a look at the evidence that jesus was truly dead now let's have a look at part of the evidence that jesus was indeed alive again and some of the witnesses So, Will, can you name one of those witnesses that saw Jesus alive? Yes, from what Jerry has read for us uh, in John 20, uh, Mary Magdalene was the first to see him. Yes. Who else, Jerry? There were, um, in fact, uh, two followers who, on their way, well, on their way home, actually, from, uh, from Jerusalem, their thoughts were, they were completely consumed with the uh, devastating experiences that they'd just uh, witnessed. Um, they had all their hopes pinned on Jesus as being the Messiah, and it appeared to them that their hopes were completely crushed. So they go home to Emmaus, and suddenly, suddenly, this stranger appears to them. They didn't recognize who it was, but uh, it becomes very clear that, um, well, they think it's a prophet, or they they think it's somebody who uh, has this amazing knowledge of what what actually uh, had happened. They start the conversation, and as they continue, they um, 
they Jesus suddenly reveals himself. That's that's what I'm getting at. Uh, so they they come face to face with Jesus as they sit down to eat a meal, and uh, and Jesus reveals to them uh, that he has indeed been risen from the dead, and he's there with them, and he opens the scriptures to them. He, he rebukes them carefully, but uh, in their great joy, they run back to Jerusalem and explain that uh, Jesus has appeared to them. They've seen him with his own eyes. Okay, so that's Mary, the, the two disciples going back to Emmaus. Who else, Nick? Yeah, we can read now uh, in the Gospel of John, uh, Len and Panel, about this uh, in verse 19 in uh, John uh, 20. Then the same day at evening, beginning the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for the fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood in the in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. I think right. this is important, uh, this aspect, because uh, Jesus want to make sure that they they believe in what he was teaching them all, all along, uh, spending time with them on this earth. All right, Mary, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, the other disciples. Joe, were there any others? Yes, there were, and I'll read it from 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 8. The first thing I did was place before you what was placed so emphatically before me. This is Paul speaking, that the Messiah died for our sins, exactly as Scripture tells it, that he was buried, that he was raised from the death, on the third day, again, exactly as scripture says that he presented himself alive to Peter and then his closest followers and later to more than 500 of his followers all at the same time, most of them still around, although a few have since died. That's almost saying, if you don't believe me, there are still those who are alive today. Go ask them that he had then spent time with James and the rest of those he commissioned to represent him and that he finally presented himself alive to me. And we know that was the road to Damascus, and that's from the message. So there was a large number of people that had seen Jesus alive and well. Okay, so now why is Christ's resurrection important to Christians, Brenton? It's important because um, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20 says, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He is the forerunner. He is the one who has paved the way. And you go down to verse 23 where it says, um, I'm going to read verse 22 as well. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. We have the contrast between death, which came as a result of sin, and Christ, which uh, eternal life comes as a result of the resurrection. Verse 23 is the clincher, but each one in his own order. Christ the first fruits, afterwards those who are Christ's at his coming. The key word there is at his coming. The thief did not go to heaven that day. He's still not in heaven. He's in the grave waiting for Christ's return. And First Thessalonians 4, 17 and 18 tells us that Christ himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we will be caught up together with them. That's the rapture, Len, that Scripture talks about. Yes, and I realise there are many 
Christians who are quite confused over this issue. Yes. Those who have died, like the thief on the cross, are dead, awaiting Christ's return, not flitting up to heaven in a secret rapture. Well, unlike Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, and other world religious leaders, Jesus had the power to overcome death. That same power will be exercised on behalf of the saints at his second coming. Now, is that good news or what? So before we stop today, Will, I know you have a little quote, which is so beautiful that I think we should have it. Yes, Len, it's uh, from a book, Desire of Ages, which I'd highly recommend uh, all of us read. It says, at the Saviour's resurrection, a few graves were opened, but at his second coming, all the precious dead shall hear his voice and shall come forth to glorious immortal life. The same power that raised Christ from the dead will raise his church and glorify it with him above all principalities, above all powers, above every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. Thank you, Will. And what we're talking about here and what that quote was about is what the Apostle Paul called the blessed hope. Do you have it? Do you have it, panel? Yes. Yes. Yes, we do. I'd love to hear those yeses. And I have it too. And I hope you listeners have that same blessed hope that he who raised from the dead, was raised from the dead, will raise his people and take us home to glory. Let us close with prayer. Thank you, Ledger. Glorious Father in heaven, thank you so much for Jesus' resurrection, which is so central to our Christian faith today. Father, thank you for this blessed hope of salvation through Jesus, for all the convincing evidence that he gave us to believe in it and as we went through some of those today. Thank you so much for Jesus' love for us by offering himself voluntarily to come to this dark and sinful world to live and die without sin, to demonstrate us that it's possible for us too to live a life without sin. Thank you so much that Jesus fulfilled his divine mission becoming victorious over sin, death, over Satan and uh, his evil powers, and you raised him up through your divine power by giving us the hope of salvation and assurance that the righteous bodies will be resurrected by you through his Spirit, of all those who believed and loved you. Father, please help us to live with this wonderful hope and assurance that one day we will see Jesus return again, coming for us to take his faithful people and live with him eternally. In his wonderful name we pray. Amen. 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 Well, uh, thank you so much, everyone, for your input uh, today. 
Just before we finish, I would like to actually mention uh, to our dear friends listening, Will, you quoted from a book, uh, Desire of Ages. And my dear friend, if you like that book, please don't uh, hesitate to send us a text message or just uh, an email and request that book because we'll be very happy to provide you. It's one of the most wonderful books on life of Jesus. And you'll be blessed to have that book uh, and read it. Now, so far, we're reaching halfway through our um, studies and uh, the series which we have uh, on death or dying and the future hope. And our next uh, Bible study, which I will really invite you to be uh, with us, is about uh, the New Testament hope. And it's a beautiful verse which we'll look at uh, next time, which says this. And in this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. Everything what we've been talking about up to here is because of the consequences of sin, death. But we have that blessed hope and assurance that God will provide us with eternal life. The question is, if we believe in our Lord Jesus Christ, may you, dear friend, have an experience with God today. And if you following Jesus, continue to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Until next time, may God richly bless you.